0: God of love, may we join the Israelites in their camp. May we join the congregations that James writes to. May we join our hearts and our souls and our spirits and our wills with yours. That the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, let the people say, So my reading this week has been a commentary on Leviticus and Numbers, and admittedly, these are not the most scintillating books of the Bible. They are full of lists and commands and ways you should do. If ever you hear anyone telling the things you should not do, it often comes from Leviticus. There's a plague, there's a census, there's all sorts of seemingly uninteresting stuff. So when we got to chapter 11 in the book of Numbers, I was thrilled when the commentator said, this is definitely my favorite part of the whole story. But you just witnessed here in our reenactment on our temporary Shakespearean stage, the people of Israel complaining. So familiar, right? If you've ever been a part of any family, any community, any church, any group of friends, you know that complaining is just the way we do it. You may get fired up and ready out to do the fight, but then when you get out there and your tires get stuck in the mud... You'll lose it. Why are we out here again? What are we doing? You may be a strong recruit for some new mission that you've been invited to do, but then when the rubber hits the road or the things aren't going as well as you'd like them to, we tend to complain and natter and chatter among ourselves. When I was thrust from my very lily-white Midwestern suburban existence into a national university, I was grateful because it opened the world to me, and it opened me to people whose cultures were different than my own. Not because I sought them out so much, but because of just the fact that I had a Chinese-American friend in the next suite on the floor, or I had an African-American friend down the hall, or I had a Jewish-American friend who was my roommate. And I learned that in different cultures, not only do they have different customs and religions and different ways of eating, but they also have different ways of interacting interpersonally. And one of the things I noticed is that other cultures were much more comfortable complaining out loud and often just putting it out there. In my experience as I was growing up, I noticed this particularly more among Italian American, Jewish American and African American families. That was my experience. Yours may be different and it's not universal. But I pointed this out to an Italian American friend of mine and she said, "You know, our grandparents didn't have time to complain. They are t- com- complaining to they didn't have time to be too polite. So they were too busy surviving, so they just put it out there. It was if you, the meat didn't taste right at dinner, you said something. If you didn't like the selection of the buffet, you said it. If someone was having a bad day and being a real pill, you pointed it out to them. If someone had made the unfortunate fashion choice, you commented on it. <laughs> if someone pissed you off, you didn't steam and stew for weeks and months, you confronted them. Now, I came from a slightly opposite culture. I came from a culture where it was a little bit more you kept it under your lid, you didn't talk about it, but you talked behind people's back, (laughs) nattering and chattering that happened behind you, right? And you would give those nice, terse, veiled smiles. You might pour some sour milk in the morning coffee and then say, oh, I didn't know. Or you might casually not invite them to an event they might be regularly attending, and then you say, oh, I didn't realize you weren't invited. I'm so sorry. bald face lie. <laughs> or you just give them the cold shoulder. The most effective thing was just the silent treatment. You just kind of shut down that warmth on the other person. My brother oft- but you would give often a brave or kindly face to greeting people. My brother used to joke in the 70s, you could be the Ayatollah Khomeini and show up in our community, and people would be like, I'm so glad to meet you. Now, I have to say, having paid a lot for therapy and having learned to be a pastor of a church, I prefer a more direct way, or as the letter to Ephesians says, how do we speak the truth in love? It is a fine art to learn to do that. But it's important to speak up when things aren't right or feel out of kilter. It's important also to get clear on what's worth complaining about. Now, I don't know if you caught everything that had just happened. God has led the Israelites for a month and a year out of slavery in Egypt into this wild country where things are not like they were used to. They're having to adjust. They've been learning. It's been sort of a spiritual retreat in the wilderness where they've been learning what it means to be God's people so that when they have their own land, they can do it right. They've been learning statutes and laws and precepts and qualities to realign their moral compass so they know how to be when they have what they need again. And God provides all this manna that falls down every night, and they can make it into bread so they have enough to eat out there in the wilderness. They didn't take the most direct route. That would be straight up the coast. No, they zigged and zagged through the wilderness until they finally got to the promised land. And all of a sudden, they say, we don't have any meat. We don't have any fish. Remember those melons and cucumbers and garlic and onion? You can imagine how upset Moses is. Here I've been with you all this time. Am I supposed to do everything for you? Am I supposed to hold you like a nursing child and coddle you? They say they got the fish for free in Egypt. Newsflash, they were slaves in Egypt. Come on. Now, I'm sure you've been in complaining sessions like that, where people are just more satisfied to complain about how things are going, just to natter among themselves instead of really getting serious about making some changes that need to happen. And my favorite line of this whole scripture is when Moses, completely exhausted, and we have to give him some credit. It's not his best moment, but he's indignant. And to his credit, he talks directly to God about it. Because God can always handle your complaining. And in my experience, God will always give you an answer. It's probably not the one you want, but it's the one you'll get. And Moses has that very private interaction. You know, I'm not pleased. I'm really fed up here. Actually, I'd just like to die and leave these crazy people to themselves. God keeps Moses in there, in the game, leading them to the promised land. And the line that I love the most is at the end, he gets fed up. And he says, as these people are complaining, oh, Eldad and Medad are now speaking up. He says, would that all of you were prophets. That would relieve me of some stress. I would love it if the Spirit of the Lord would fall on all of us. I will say that I feel very blessed in this community that even though we all have things to complain about, I usually think they are the right complaints. And I will also say that I do not feel fed up with you as Moses did with the Israelites. Truth. But I have, I will say, as I have said before, I would love it if all of us were a sort of school for the prophets, a place where we learn to speak that prophetic voice. You may know that Harvard was founded in 1636 as a school for the prophets. That while our current ministers might lie in the dust, we would have a learned ministry out there. Now, they've since branched out since that inception, but there's some of us from the divinity school who try to do that, and so we come to communities like yours and try to create schools for the prophet wherever we are. The definitive idea about the prophets was written in the early 20th century by Abraham Joshua Heschel, who said that a prophet is not merely a mouthpiece for God, but a person, not just an instrument, but a partner, an associate with God. Someone who is so tuned in with the divine imagination, the divine mind, and even more importantly, Heschel says, the divine heart. Caring about the things that God cares about. If you read the prophets, if you read Jesus, if you read Paul, you know the things that God cares about are the people who are most vulnerable. The people who are most going to get ridden over by kingdoms and empires and principalities. God is most concerned with the vulnerable and the oppressed among us. That's theme number one. And I also think a prophet is clearly in tune with what Jesus said the fundamentals of our faith are. Number one, love your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the fundamentals of the faith. Don't let anyone else tell you differently. And our job is to live out those fundamentals with as much conviction, as much mind, and as much heart as possible. It means that when we complain about things, they're the right things to complain about. They're the godly things to complain about. They're the things that God would complain about. That people are being shafted by an economic system that is running away from them. That we are not a fully welcoming place as Jesus was welcoming to children and the most vulnerable among us. It also means speaking up when bad things are happening and letting your voice be heard. I had lunch on Monday, as I do once a month, with my mentor colleague Kim Crawford Harvey from Arlington Street Church. And last week in their sanctuary, as she was preaching a sermon on the courage of your convictions, some Christian terrorists came in the sanctuary and they started shouting at the congregation saying things like, you all need to repent, you are sinful, and the blood of Christ is here to redeem you. Now, what happened is a scrum of people non-violently kind of helped them toward the door. A judge in the congregation started taking videos. They had a whole plan worked out, and I just say to our worship team and ushers, we might want to think about this too. And one of my dear friends, who doesn't go to church there regularly, but is one of the kindest and nicest people I know, who's not particularly crazy about religion, stood up in the middle of the sanctuary in this interruption of the sermon, and he began in a loud voice to recite the principles of the Unitarian Universalist Association. We believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. We believe in justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. We believe in acceptance of one another and encouragement in spiritual growth in our congregations, We believe in a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We believe in the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in the society at large. We believe the goal of the world community is peace, liberty, and justice for all. We respect the interdependent web of all existence of which we are part. And as he said at Arlington Street Church, love is the spirit of this church, and service its gift, now get on out the door." Someone posted on Facebook, three men interrupted our church service today to yell at us that Jesus loves us and that we needed to be saved or we would go to hell. That message damaged me as a kid, and I was having none of it. Several of us, myself included, rose to our feet and nonviolently but firmly escorted these men out. I felt a mix of emotions all day about this, but mainly I just feel sad and I feel violated. These men invaded our sacred space with a theology that took me years to recover from. I wish I could show them what I went through to get where I am today. I wish they could understand my journey, and maybe they would think twice about coming here with a message that we are all broken and only they have the cure. Fortunately, these men reminded me why I still chose Arlington Street Church at my spiritual home. No one is broken here. Everyone is redeemed. And everyone is celebrated. Love is the spirit of our congregation always. Now, as I spoke to Kim about this, I wondered what you all would say if that happened. Who among us might stand up and what would we say? Would we say similar things? Would we say that we believe that this is a culture and a place of grace and not condemnation as one of our 2030s spoke up? Would we say that Jesus loves everyone, no exceptions? We might have a slightly different theology than Arlington Street Church, that we actually do believe there is some brokenness and there is some healing in store for us, but that God is benevolent and gives that grace freely to all who would ask it. Would we recite the fundamentals of our faith, that what we're supposed to do is love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and love our neighbors as ourselves? Would we say God speaks up for the most vulnerable among us and welcomes us like newborn babies to start again? I'd love for you to think about what you would say if confronted with someone like that who interrupts your sacred space with their own ideas, uninvited and loudly. Kim said in her sermon that day she had two main points and I asked if I could share it here today and she said, sure, steal away. Any preacher knows that all work and no plagiarism makes you a dull preacher. (laughs) The two things she said is we all have to be clear on what our moral compass is. What is our true north? And I would encourage you to think your true north is God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ and lived with us through the Holy Spirit. But it's beyond partisan politics. It's beyond policy issues like abortion or gay marriage. It's about what do we really value as followers of Jesus and as children of God and how do we live those out with our lives? What are our right and our wrong and how are we clear about that? And the other thing she said is, I think we need to have a healthy skepticism about everything we hear. I don't know where you were this week as you were listening to the hearings going on in the Senate. I imagine there are some of us who think that Dr. Ford is telling the truth, either based on our own experience of sexual harassment or sec- sexual oppression, or because we just want for Judge Kavanaugh not to be confirmed. Or it may be that we think that Judge Kavanaugh, or we have friends or family who think this was framed, that this is some sort of conspiracy against him, or a mistaken identity, or something unclear. But we have to listen to those kinds of arguments with open ears about the possibilities, and more importantly, where is God and our moral compass as we listen to it? There is a lot of crazy stuff going on out there right now, And my hope is that you and I get really clear on what we believe and we speak up with conviction about it. The thing that I would add to Kim's sermon is what the letter of James was asking us to add. Which is that we have to pray the prayer of the righteous because it's powerful and effective. Just like Elijah did when he thought no one cared about him. Just like Moses did when he was ready to give up his life. That we talk with God and get real clear about what it is we need to do and what it is we need to say. Now, some of you I know may not believe in a sort of transactional prayer. That is, if I ask God for this or be like this with me, then it's going to happen or not. That's okay. That's fine. We can work on that. But I want to suggest to you, think about prayer's other functions. Which is to help each of us get deeply in touch with our moral and spiritual center to get in touch with the ground of all our being, the higher power, our deeper will, God's will. That we might get in touch with a deep well of action and right speech. That it may activate all our chakras, particularly those of will and heart and voice. That we might pray that we speak up appropriately and in a timely manner about things that are unjust. That we pray that we may have the courage and seize opportunities to test that courage and do measure, And we might pray that we have a right sense of gratitude for all the good things that God has given us, all the ways that God has provided for each one of us, and that we might trust. We might trust that God will continue to provide. And then we need to listen, because God will show us what to do. Because God, in her own sweet, conjoling, decisive and insistent way is inviting each one of us to be a prophet. Amen.